Welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michelle Perro. Dr. Michelle Perro and I met recently at a conference, and I am so impressed with her book, What's Making Our Children Sick. I have a special interest in this topic. As you all know, I'm a new mom, and I think that um, there's so much information that we need to share and spread the word to keep our children healthy. And uh, Dr. Perro does an excellent job about this. So I hope you enjoy our conversation today about genetically modified foods and how to keep our children healthy. Dr. Michelle Perro is a veteran pediatrician with over 35 years of experience in acute and integrative medicine. More than 10 years ago, Dr. Perro transformed her clinical practice to include pesticide and health advocacy. She's both directed and worked as attending physician from New York's Metropolitan Hospital to UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, Oakland. Dr. Perro has managed her own business, Down to Earth Pediatrics. She's currently lecturing and consulting as well as working with Gordon Medical Associates and Integrative Health Center in Northern California. Welcome, Dr. Perro. I'm so excited to interview you today on our podcast. Uh, glad to be here, Christine. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Michelle and I met recently at a conference this summer, but I had no I've known of your work and I've known about your practice when I took over Dr. Louisa Williams' practice in Marin County in about 2015. And I know that we exchanged a few emails, but we never got to meet until uh, this August. And um, I am just so um, I have so much respect for the work you're doing and being a new mom. I thought this would be a really appropriate conversation to share uh, with our audience today. So um, again, I'm so thankful for your time. Equally, and I know of your work, and I'm a fan as well. So I think we have a mutual fan society going on. Um, We can pat each other on the back, and it it takes us all to do really good work, Christine. So it's really a a pleasure. Oh, well, thank you. And, you know, I would love for our audience, um, before we get into our conversation, just to learn a little bit more about your background. You're a conventional medical doctor and a trained uh, pediatrician, and you have experience um, in emergency and acute care, which I think is such a valuable um, foundation from where you're, um, you know, sharing all this new information with us. So just tell us a little bit about how you got into medicine and really how you became um, an expert in integrative and an alternative medicine as well. Sure. I would love to share that with the audience. Um, so my, as you mentioned, um, my background is in acute care. I was a pediatric emergency doc for many years. And uh, what happened to me is is worth repeating because it's happened to so many of us. Um, I, I had a kid and this was 24 years ago and my kid had some health challenges. And I had a fortuitous serendipitous encounter with an MD homeopath. And I always give a shout out to her. She's still practicing here in Marin County, Dr. Ifoma Ikenze. And Dr. Ikenze, you know, said, you know, Michelle, give Jesse sponge your toaster, <laughs> you know, and she, she's a Nigerian woman. And, you know, being from New York, uh, the troglodyte city in terms of integrative medicine, I hadn't heard of homeopathy. Um, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say now. And so I give my son this little remedy and he gets better. Um, he gets sick again, repeat the remedy, gets better again. And I'm like, well, wait a second. You've got to be kidding me. This is, it's like a freaking miracle. So, um, I started studying homeopathy. I needed to learn what these little, uh, you know, affordable, tasty, you know, how hard it is to get kids to take medicine, uh, sugar pills were. And so that began my study 
of homeopathy. And back in 2000, I had worked with EFOMA for a while. I was doing really a homeopathic and Western practice, opened my own little cute urgent care in Fairfax and Marin County, and I was doing this integrative blend. So what was happening at the same time I was doing all this, um, I started seeing this decline in children's health. And it was kind of gradual in around 2000. I'm like, huh. And by 2005, 2006, I'm like, well, wait a second. Things are shifting. What the heck's going on? But I wasn't, because I was not really in tune to that and busy mom, I had two small children, my own practice, yada, yada, like so many women putting out many fires at once. I was approached by a group of gals here in Marin County to stop the spray against a light brown apple moth. And they wanted to spray the entire coast of Northern California. They were called mamas. And these gals enlisted me because they needed a doctor on their board. And boy, I didn't want to do it. I was reluctant, um, was busy. I really wanted to say no. And like many good women, you know what I did, Christine? Mm -hmm. I said yes. <laughs> uh, and I was like, sure. Yeah, of course. Uh, I have nothing else to do. Um, and I wasn't an activist. I, I was like, you know, when you're seeing patients all day, you're not thinking about, oh, I'll become an activist. So these gals stopped the spray. I did very little except drink organic coffee and hang out at their houses here and there and make suggestions on occasion. And they really did all the heavy lifting. And one of the gals in that group said, what did I think about GMOs? And in 2006, I didn't have a thought about GMOs. I barely knew what they were. And there is another revelation of embarrassment, but that's the way it was. It wasn't in my literature, that's for sure. And so she said, Michelle, you need to read Jeffrey Smith's book, Seeds of Deception. And she thrust the book at me. And I, like a good pediatrician, I listened to women, especially these smart gals. They knew everything. And I read the book. And so I read this book and I started learning about GMOs and I read the work about the first researcher. He's a plant biologist. He's still alive named Dr. Arpad Pusti. And he worked at the Rowett Institute in the UK. And this was um, uh, his research came out around 1996 to 1998. And he was the first scientist to look at the role of genetically modified food before introducing it into our food supply in the UK. And he thought GM food was going to be fine. And he, what he learned was that it was not fine. And so he was a hero in, in the BBC report on his findings for two days. And then he was fired from the Rowett Institute. And so I won't get into all that. But when I started really digging deep into Dr. Pusti's work, and I would be remiss if I didn't honor him like almost every time I speak, because he really was a life changer for me. I recognized like, oh, my God, this can be what I'm seeing in like every kid has leaky gut intestinal permeability. And this is why I'm seeing all this dysbiosis, uh, imbalanced microbiome in kids and, and their parents, by the way, I talk about kids, but it's grownups too. Mm -hmm. And I thought, whoa, 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 wait a second. And that began the beginning. I, I couldn't close my eyes. I said, wait a minute, we are feeding all our kids this stuff that has not been studied in humans. And our kids have this exponential rise of disease, which is what I talk about in the book with my co-author, uh, Dr. Adams. And we go into it really deep in the weeds, pun intended. <laughs> and that's how this is a very long answer. But this is how it all evolved. It, I think most of it was serendipity um, on and just on my part, being in the right place at the right time and just being willing to keep an open mind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like a lot of synchronicity in your life. And, you know, here we are, right? Um, 2018 and, you know, the rights of autism are on the rise. I think one in 59 children now have autism. Um, and that, you know, has um, bumped up from, I think, one in 68 just a few years ago. And then, um, you know, chronic illness is on the rise and not only, um, you know, just our general population, but in our kiddos as well. And so I know all of these, um, all of these uh, coincidences, if you will, led to your book, um, What's Making Our Children Sick. And so share a little bit about the inspiration uh, for this book and really what your focus, uh, you know, the answer to this question, right? What is making our children sick these days? So what had happened, Christine, is so I was sitting on this like minefield of information and um, I was seeing patients all day. I was a full-time clinician and in a full-time clinician these days, you're really in front of a, a computer screen all day, as horrible as that is. And I just didn't have the impetus to come home and write a book. I wanted to write this book. I felt that I couldn't reach enough people in a clinical practice to say, hey guys, we've got a big problem on our hands. So my neighbor moved in. Uh, this was about five years ago, Dr. Adams, Vincent, and we were walking and, well, hey, what do you do? What do you do? You know, chatting away. I had dogs. We were hiking my dogs. And so she uh, said she was an author and she had studied Tibet medicine and she was a medical anthropologist. And I was like, whoa, wow. mm-hmm. really? Wow. I was like, so cool. She's brilliant. And I thought, well, gee, Vincent, I want to write a book too. A book too. And I told her about it. And she said, I'll help you write that book. I said, you will. <laughs> God I, said, <laughs> I said, oh, good, good Lord. Yeah, that's what it was. It was like somebody jumping, an angel jumping down on my back. So we began, we enrolled a bunch of my patients. She interviewed 20 of my patients with me from my practice at the Institute for Health and Healing at the time. And uh, she at first was extremely skeptical about about what all this was going on. She didn't know anything about GMOs. She didn't believe about leaky gut dysbiosis, this link of this kind of poison food. Um, I, I had to work hard to convince her. But she started hearing the stories one after the other after the other of my patients and what it took to get them better. And by the end of our inquiry, which interviewing everyone took about a year, mm-hmm. she was like fully on board. And then we got we really try to produce an academic book, but yet that's readable. Um, based on science, we didn't want to be poo-pooed by the medical com- community because she works with medical students at UCSF. And we really wanted to be able to get in to doctor's offices, politicians, educators. So we really try to produce this academic book. But but yet that was just so erudite, that wasn't reachable um, on why. How did we get into this mess? And offer solutions on how we get out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think when you're on the front line of as a clinician, you know, our, our, you know, you can't close your eyes to this, right? You know, our patients are our greatest teachers and, um, you know, they, they probably, there was a lot of commonality of what you're seeing. And I guess a lot of our audiences, I, I feel is very educated, but what kind of um, what, what were you seeing in children, um, from like, let's say the beginning of your career to, you know, now, what, what are the incidences of increased to like asthma or eczema or neurological disease? What were you starting to see more of in your patient population? 
Absolutely. So, you know, being a resident in New York and I took care of very sick populations and as an acute care physician, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there was no such thing as neurocognitive disease. As a matter of fact, in our pediatric textbooks, there was no sensory, auditory, any, um, any kind of processing, visual processing, nothing in even our books until extremely recently. So this neurocognitive dysfunction is one of my biggest areas of concern. Now, as functional docs, you know, we all look at the gut, gut, gut. But if I start looking at this neurologic dysfunction, it is profoundly concerning. Autistic spectrum disorder or autism, what we called it back when I was a resident, was so uncommon that when a kid on the spectrum came into the office, the attending physician would bring us all in to see the kid because it was so unusual. Mm. Now... As you said, we've got one in 34 boys, one in 58 kids. You're right. It's been changed in a year since we wrote the book, which has only been out a year, not even a year. And um, it's state by state with some states like New Jersey have the highest rate. And I believe Alabama reported the lowest. But, you know, it's I got to look at the statistics. We know how you can tweak stats, Christine, (laughs) as Mm -hmm. we know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got to be careful there. Mm -hmm. But. So, and all those disorders that go with it, ADHD, yeah, it wasn't rare when I was practicing back in the day, but now it's 10% of kids and drug prescribing was very uncommon, you know, 20, 30 years ago. We didn't prescribe these uh, hyperactive medications and now, you know, you'll have 10% of kids on that, particularly boys um, who seem to be more affected. Um, if you look at the asthma statistics, it was about one in 16, 20 years ago. It's one in eight white kids, one in six African-American kids and Latino kids. It's all over the map because Latino kids come from many countries and they're kind of bunched together, whereas Puerto Rican children have 20 percent rate of asthma. You know, we can go into that. And Mexican-American might be any more more like one to eight. So that's kind of on the map. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, what is so shocking is obesity. Mm-hmm. Um, rates of obesity have been rising steadily. We're now at one in five to one in three kids. Again, it's state dependent. And then with all the sequelae of obesity, metabolic syndrome, uh, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, kids now have high blood pressure. And w- it was so uncommon when I was a resident, we didn't even check blood pressures in the clinic because it was unheard of to have a kid with hypertension. Obesity, I think it was 1% of the population back um, in 1960s in a big study of um, Erie, the Erie Canal area. It's about 5 to 6% of, of children now have type 1 diabetes, horrible disease, especially for a kid. So that, and so, and then I can go on to, you know, the food issue. Oh my God. Food allergies, the severe ones, the IgE related food allergies are about one in 13 kids. Um, But that does not include the food intolerances and the food sensitivities, which are allergies in my opinion, although Western medicine says no. And I would say that's more like 40%. But in an, in an area, when you have a kid with a complex chronic disease or adults for that matter, in my previous practice, 95% of my kid came in for whatever disorder, whether asthma, eczema, had 95% of them had leaky gut mm-hmm. and evidence of dis, gut dysfunction. And so, I mean, I could give you stats, you know, not to just the audience is probably just like groaning right about here, but I could give you stats on mental health issues, dysomnia, sleep disorders, eczema, um, et cetera, that all show these exponential increases, shocking, and by definition, epidemic, because the CDC definition of epidemic is one in 100. Mm. These diseases are 
way more common. So we have epidemics, unlike, you know, 30 years ago, we're worrying about, you know, TB. We are worrying about chemical-induced uh, environmental toxins, toxicants, and industrial food, which in itself is a poison. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And such great information that you provided just now. And, you know, how I was taught when we see a rise in, um, you know, in illness at this rate, we have to look at the environment, right? Genetics don't change that quickly. And so, so what is going on with our environment and our food supply? So we've had significant change in the environment. So in 1996, the rollout was for genetically modified food. If we talk about food, because we're all eating at least three times a day, and in my case, often more. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and I don't know anyone who eats 100% organic, Christine. If you eat organic, you will not be eating GM food. So these foods are rolled out so they can be, um, so you could spray Roundup on them. They're herbicide tolerant. That is the only reason we brought out genetically modified food. They do not save the world from hunger. They require more water. They do not have genetic variations that improve their nutritional content. Golden rice and vitamin A has been a 20-some-odd-year failure. Um, which we wrote about, and we could talk about that. So there is, and the amount of Roundup or glyphosate, which is the active ingredient Roundup, that has had to be applied because of weed resistance, approximately 75% of weeds in the U.S. are now resistant to the most commonly applied herbicide, increasing amounts have to be applied. So I think the last that I I saw, like in the U.S., 1.8 billion kilos of of glyphosate-based herbicides have been applied in the U.S. And over the ten, past 10 years, it's been this profound increase, not just on these herbicide tolerant crops, which is just about everything kids eat, but they use it off-label to dry out crops as crop desiccants. So we're getting massive amounts of glyphosate. And we can go into why glyphosate and the other stuff in these chemical formulations are so toxic. But it's this chemical... Um, our food has been turned into a chemical. We're dousing it with now um, uh, herbicides where in the past you could not spray a crop with an herbicide because it would die. But now you can spray it, the crop doesn't die. So our, our, so the toxic load has increased. And while they're increasing this toxic load of pesticides, there are no studies looking at the effect of a chemical soup. So what happens when you're exposed, exposed to glyphosate and aluminum and parabens, styrenes, pick your poison, air pollution, particulate matter from the fires here in California. Mm -hmm. We have no data on what happens to the multiplicity here of chemicals on sensitive individuals, pregnant women, children, et cetera, and animals like dogs, livestock. And we have we have good data, by the way, on like dogs and livestock. So you see this this is so if we don't even look at the rest of the chemical soup we're exposed mm-hmm. to, forget, you know, all the other chemicals, food is not the only one, but boy, it's a big part of our exposure. Absolutely. And it's this idea, um, Dr. Prezorno is a naturopathic doctor and he wrote a book called The Toxin Solution. Um, and he always said one plus one doesn't equal two anymore. And it, you just illustrated that. And I, you know, where I sit, um, you know, I've just been practicing eight years, but I see very sick people and, you know, we're scratching our head, you know, why are people so sick these days? And I often tell our, tell my patients, if it was one thing, you know, you wouldn't be this sick, right? So we have to look at it from all angles. But with, I think you um, are picking a very important 
important topic to focus on because I think obviously none of us can escape food, right? We have to eat all day and, um, you know, food is supposed to nourish us, not poison us. And so um, many of, again, my audience, I feel is very educated, but I don't want to... I don't want to overlook anything. So some people might be scratching their head and say, no, genetically modified food. Well, I eat organic. I think I'm not avoiding them. But um, tell us a little bit more why this is such an issue and how pervasive genetically modified foods are in our food system. Like what what are common genetically modified foods and why, um, you know, we may be ingesting them even if we don't know it. Yes, um, they it. In, indeed, you are correct. The genetically modified foods are pervasive. Like 94% of our corn is genetically modified. Um, similar numbers um, are true for soy, which is in just about everything, even in our packaged foods, as soy lecithin. Canola is almost completely genetically modified. Cotton is extremely uh, modified, uh, high levels in the 90% range, maybe 96%. Um, and it's a very heavily sprayed crop as well. Many pesticides go to the cotton field. And in cotton, we not only we use the cottonseed oil, but we also use uh, the cotton uh, baby diapers, mm. uh, tampons, little dental pledgets that we put in your mouth after a hyperemic wisdom tooth extraction. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the thing, if you think about that, um, they're all contaminated with GM and pesticides. Um, alfalfa is genetically modified, and that is fed to our livestock. So even you're getting it that way. If you're eat, if you're um, not uh, not a vegetarian, you're going to eat it in your meat. Um, uh, papayas from Hawaii are modified, and sugar from sugar beets. So if you just looked at corn, soy, and canola. Um, along with sugar from sugar beets, like the three top foods in kids' diets, the number one diet that our kids um, are eating are sugar from sugary treats. Number two is pizza. And uh, yes, if you can believe that. Um, and uh, the only fruit and vegetable, um, then, uh, and out of all these foods studied by the USDA, the only vegetable our kids are getting are French fries and fruit is apple juice. So be, we're, so they're getting all this genetically modified food. It's in everything. And so you can see to avoid it, if, if you go to a restaurant, Asian cuisine, Japanese, uh, Chinese, unless it's organic, it's genetically modified. If you go to a Mexican restaurant, I love going eating out Mexican food, tacos, unless it's organic, all modified. So eating out is a problem. Who doesn't want to just grab a quick, you know, taco, right? Forget mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. So this is a problem, especially for our kids in schools and who are getting completely genetically modified, non-nutrient uh and dense nutrient dense, no nutrients in our food. That's been a big side project of mine. Mm-hmm. So those are the foods that are modified, um, the main ones. And there are a few more. And what's coming out now is a recent introduction of the Arctic apple. And they're not labeling it. We have no labeling. We don't know. People won't know it's modified. The innate potato, so it doesn't brown. Simplot, they're called. And what I'm finding is popping up all over the U.S. I was in an airport recently, is the Impossible Burger. And this is this millennial burger. It's, it's touted to solving our problems because it tastes like meat. It's vegetarian, so we're not going to be using animals. It's highly genetically modified. 46 new proteins not been studied out of that thing. Um, be clear, it's from a genetically modified soy um, that to give it this meaty taste. Um, and what industry is saying about it is frankly not true. It's not been cleared by the FDA. It's not been studied. We wrote a great article about that on our website, uh, GMO science. So, um, you know, these are my concerns 
And people have no idea because the food is not labeled. We lost that in California, Oregon, Washington. People have no idea what they're eating. And so this is why I have such a scream. I don't even say a cry anymore that people must eat organic, particularly if you're dealing with a health challenge. I mean, everyone needs to eat organic. We have to support organic farming. We have to stop um, underwriting conventional farming and give that money to organic farmers Mm -hmm. so they can make an income, support our farmer, eat farm to table. But this is why, Christine. And so um, that... This is why I have to stand behind organic food. It's a huge part of my treatment plan. I don't overlook this conversation with my patients. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there's so many great points, again, that you just brought up. And I I just like to take a step back and be like, why is there even um, an uh, objection to labeling, right? You know, so, you know, when you think about why would somebody not want these foods to be labeled and you just have to think about that, right? What are the implications of that? They're obviously worried that people would make different choices if they knew um, about if they had more awareness around this issue, right? And so I just think, you know, we've lost our mind sometimes, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, it's just the common sense, we've, we've lost it. But um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm with you, you know, we can't, um, you know, we can only control what we can control. But what, even in, um, you know, patients who really, I know some of my patients are very type A and they eat perfectly. And um, we can start testing for glyphosate now and in the urine, we can look at it. And it's um, not a perfect test, but it definitely gives us a snapshot. And I have been, you know, surprised that many people who quote, eat perfectly still have this body burden of glyphosate. So my what I'm getting at is, you know, why, you know, what is glyphosate really, um, you know, doing to our body. And, you know, I know Monsanto um, or Bear, what, however we refer to them now, um, you know, they like to say, oh, this doesn't stay in the body. It doesn't bioaccumulate, but we know that it has, um, you know, that it does have long lasting effects and it, it does bioaccumulate. And so um, what are some of your major concerns about this genetic, uh, the, this exposure to genetically modified foods in our bodies? Right. These are great questions. So um, you don't need a genetically modified food without its associated pesticide, which is a glyphosate-based herbicide. And uh, and one point I need to make about them, I'll talk about the toxicity of of glyphosate, which is going to be really relevant for your listeners. But remember that they come in these formulations, which are probably more toxic than just the glyphosate alone. So for example, Roundup includes a surfactant, uh, POEA, which is a detergent that breaks down cell membranes that allows the glyphosate to enter the cells, which makes it more toxic. And this is indeed probably why we have so much mitochondrial disruption and mitochondrial toxicities, this one-two punch um, about it. And uh, we've known this since 1979. I have a good paper about that, uh, 1990. Uh, 2018, I have papers showing the toxicity um, from these glyphosate-based herbicides on mitochondria, um, which is particularly relevant in our patients who have like CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, and fibromyalgia. So glyphosate, what does it do? So it was patented as an antibiotic by Monsanto and the original, and the and I read the patent and the patent describes glyphosate as a broad spectrum antibiotic. And they tooted it, touted it as an antibiotic that could heal um, everything from malaria to staph infections. So what effect this has on the microbiome in the humans, we don't know. But what we do have is microbiome data on chickens. And what it showed was that, I know, we're, we're here, we're, we're eating this stuff and no data. 
it, it just blows my mind. Mm. But what we show from a, a study by a gal named Monica Kruger in Germany um, is that it altered the microbiome in chicken so that the um, beneficial bacteria such as lactobacilli and bifidobacteria were diminished. And it promoted the growth of uh, more pathogenic bacteria like clostridial species and salmonella. And this has been reproduced in other animal species as well. So there is how much it takes, and we have no idea. I am sure there are some of us who could eat it and would be okay, and some of us just could have a little, and we're going to have profound effects. So it's not clear how much we can tolerate. So glyphosate is also a metal chelator, and this is so important because it was first learned that it was an herbicide when they were using it as a chelator, and it found out when they were using it outside that it killed the weeds around where they were cleaning the metals. And it binds um, uh, cations such as manganese, magnesium, calcium, zinc. And we're finding significant deficiencies in these nutrients, particularly in kids, Mm -hmm. um, but in livestock. And what I suspect is happening and what this huge mitochondrial dysfunction we're having having is that it's binding uh, manganese, which is causing perhaps uncoupling or um, or oxidative phosphorylation issues in the mitochondria. Um, But we need manganese for our mitos. But it's not just manganese, it's copper. And you need that for thyroid function, zinc for brain and immune function. Um, You need the magnesium for every function, right? How many of our patients are magnesium deficient, Mm -hmm. like all? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And so so this chelating effect is profound. If you say, hey, Michelle, give me the human data. Again, don't have any extrapolating it from cows. So then what it also does, it impairs a cytochrome P450 system which, hello, which is our one of our major detoxification pathways in the liver. So the microbiome is affected, and that's, you know, for, you know the first kind of line of defense and detoxification is our microbiome and then the liver. And but not, you know, so this, not only does it affect the cytochrome P450 system, it also has been shown by a beautiful paper from a, a researcher at a King's College, Dr. Michael Antonio and his group, He's a genetic researcher. He's the head of um, gene expression at King's College in London. And he did a paper in in 2017 in January, which showed that two parts per billion of Roundup, which is way lower than what we get, caused, not correlated, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in rats. Now, we are having an epidemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in humans, Mm -hmm. like one of four, according to the American Liver Foundation. So... We are also having non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is the sequelae in obese children out of an Italian study done about a year and a half ago. So, and no one, I can tell you, is looking at like liver ultrasounds in children. I can tell you it's not done. And it is adult, maybe not an adult either. And it, it's silent. And this can progress. So as if that's not enough from this magic glyphosate, you know, um, in 2015, um, in March, the um, World Health Organization uh, listed glyphosate as a class 2A carcinogen and a class 1 carcinogen in animals, 2A in humans, because we don't have human data. And what your listeners may be aware of, this was one of the lead pieces of information 
in a recent ruling about a month and a half ago of the Dwayne Johnson case here in San Francisco mm-hmm. that awarded him, I believe, $287 million. Um, he was a chemical sprayer of Roundup on a school in Benicia. He developed skin issues and then went on to develop non-alcoholic, um, I mean, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, which has been linked to Roundup, and he won that case. I Last I heard, 8,000 cases are in the wings. Wow. And Monsanto may be trying to unload, um, I mean, Bayer may be unloading Monsanto because of this massive litigation that has been unleashed for these uh, poor cancer victims. So, okay, we got that. And then lastly, I, I introduce an idea that I've learned about through the work of Dr. Stephanie Seneff and a- Anthony Samsel and some of their theories about this is that glyphosate and phosphonomethylglycine, and it has a glycine piece in there, and glycine is a ubiquitous non-essential amino acid, may be substituting for glycine in tissues that are glycine-dependent, like collagen. Now, this research hasn't been done. It's theoretical. But Dr. Samsel, who's a researcher, I believe in New Hampshire, found that he found glyphosate in tissue, in protein tissue, like nails and hair, and different specimens. So I'll be curious to see if that pans out. But as a clinician, I have a kid in my office, a grown-up. I see grown-ups too. And they are doughy. Their muscular tissue on physical exam, imagine, I still examine people, doesn't feel good. And I'm like, what the heck? What is with these folks? And they're tired all the time. Is it the poisoning of the mitochondria? Is it myo- myositis? Is it inflammation, chronic inflammation? They all have it. Um, or is this potential glyphosate for glycine substitution and collagen mm-hmm. and uh, other areas? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Data, not, not enough data for me on that. I think about it, though. Mm-hmm. So just to lay the land of this little molecule of what it can do, that will give the listener a good feeling of the toxicity of glyphosate. Mm-hmm. I know we're both big on looking at the body and the terrain, um, you know, this idea of, you know, the environment in the body. Um kind of dictates how people respond to a pathogen. And so that's just in, you know, I've heard that um, as well from Dr. Seneff and Dr. Samsel um, or Anthony Samsel about the um, collagen breakdown because of the glycine substitution. And I'm thinking just while we're talking, that's probably why we see a lot more persistent Lyme disease and chronic infections since um, Lyme probably can take hold even more in this toxic terrain um, because Lyme for many of our listeners know um, is a, um, it likes to break down collagen and it lives in the joints and the connective tissue, these collagen rich environments that just are not, don't have that resilience that they probably, um, you know, would if they were in a non-glyphosate body, you know, right. So, um, just so many, um, no, it's just mind blowing. I mean, I, we were fortunate at Sophia. I work with Dr. Klinghardt, as many people know, um, that we, um, caught onto this, issue with glyphosate and Dr. Seneff gave us a, um, a few private lectures while we were learning about this. And it's just um, every patient, um, you know, that we test um, not only um, with a lab test, but also energetically, they have um, an exposure and it's a, it's a real issue. So um, I'm so glad you walked through the science with us here. What about, I mean, we, we've heard a lot about glyphosate. Um, are there any other, um, you know, herbicides or pesticides that you want to make us aware Aware of today that we should, um, you know, also um, know about and how they affect us. Yeah, you know, um, when we do eat a, a food now, it's not just have Roundup. You're right. You're so right. There, there are about average around six pesticides that will be picked up, and some of them are, have been trying to be banned. Some of them are banned in Europe, like chlorpyrifos. Um, 
and that is a neurotoxin. Atrazine is commonly sprayed neurotoxin. Um, also, there are fungicides that are really toxic, like like methyl bromide is often sprayed on strawberries um, and these other fungicides that are also particularly toxic for us. So we there is this is chemical soup. So you really want to look out for the organophosphates, um, and those are a particularly toxic group of uh, pesticides. Glyphosate is like an organophosphate, but not quite like the others. And I've read most of my work about organophosphates from the work of a UC Berkeley researcher named Dr. Brenda Eskenazi, and hats off to her, because she's been studying the effect of organophosphates on um, people, on migrant farmers, their children, the Salinas Valley, I think for 19 years. And her data is extraordinary, which shows the effects of these chemicals causing things like ADHD, and a severe type, um, poor birth outcomes with low, like really low motor tone, and how it affects pregnancy. So um, these these are the. I mean, how do you avoid all these chemicals? And I, you know, I know everyone knows about that EWG study that looked at umbilical cords, ten umbilical cords, mm-hmm. and I think the average chemical burden was two hundred eighty six chemicals found in umbilical cords. So. You know, this is the body burden that our children are born with, um, and these and these pesticides in the food are just make it that much more toxic. And what made me even so much, you know, what up my level of concern is, um, you know, I was at a lecture and I saw um, some slides, and I learned about this through a colleague as well, that when mold uh, mold plates were put near um, Wi-Fi EMFs in electromagnetic fields, mm-hmm. they grew they grew better. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. seem to like Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. and so I'm thinking, oh, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So, um, yeah, so here we are, <laughs> and if you and I don't know. And I'll be honest. What other what other pathogens, uh, Lyme, uh, t- you know, tick-borne infections, might love a little Wi-Fi juice, mm-hmm. might grow better, right? Mm-hmm. And they're trying to roll out this 5G. Mm-hmm. I personally can't take it on, but I sign every petition that comes my way about 5G. Mm-hmm. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Really, are we going to introduce yet another thing? Here we are trying to clean our food up, mm-hmm. um, and we want to introduce another unstudied technology that we can't roll back. Once they roll it out, mm-hmm. absolutely, Dr. Klinghart, um, who's my who's been my mentor, he has been kind of screaming about EMF, um, you know, for a long time, and he does feel like um, part of why we see the increased virulence in some of these infections that we've been around for, you know, that we've evolved with, um, is because of the increased in microwave exposure and parasites, um, you know, um, parasites, mold, Lyme, you know, all of these things, and I do see that, um, you know, we don't have a study to prove that, but I do see that clinically. Um, so it is a huge um, concern. And I, as you're saying, you can't take it all on, but I think what we can do is increase awareness and, um, you know, we mentioned a little bit before we got on, it's, it's interesting, you know, here we both are our clinicians and doctors, and we just want to help people. But we find, you know, when you know this work, you find your role um, as almost an activist as well, <laughs> um, educating people and trying to speak up to, um, you know, however we can vote to create change. And, um, you know, I think it's a good um, omen that um, the courts did find Monsanto guilty. I mean, I think that's, uh, there's a huge opportunity um, for a paradigm shift here, but it's going to take all of us to, um, yeah, keep, keep shouting and screaming and speaking up because this is not going to go away, um, without that kind of effort. 
Christine, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I remind all the, you know, I know we are, many of us might be listening, our practitioners, um, and I remind us, you know, we, we have become activists. And when I think about doctor, we are doctors, you know, um, it's from the Latin word, Latin word docere, which means to teach. We are here to educate. And so we have to, you know, in, in digest, pun intended, <laughs> complicated science. A lot of these scientific studies are not easy to understand. Genetics is not easy to understand. Wi-Fi technology, not easy to mm-hmm. understand. Digest it for our patients, our friends, our clients, and then allow them to understand. We should be able to explain it simply. If we can't understand it simply ourselves, we've got an issue. So we need to take this material, digest it, and, and feed it to our patients. So it's like, here's the information. These are the changes you can make for yourself and your own families. And so that is what I consider my role, not as an activist or an advocate, but as an educator. Mm-hmm. How do I, you know, I, I, and I'm all science-based. Can I get the information and really understand and look at these, stu- these studies critically? Is this a good study? Statistics can be manipulated the heck out of it. Is this a good study? Should I be reporting on this study? Ah, oh, it is. What do I need to tell my patients? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of, you know, what kind of the opposition wants to, you know, say is that none of this is science-based, but even with, you know, other uh, debates around aluminum and, um, you know, the thing, the things that we're up against, even, you know, Wi-Fi and EMF, they, they study these things in Europe and um, there is solid science to show you know, that we're not, um, this is not just an unsubstantiated belief or um, a theory that there is science to back this up. So I think um, it's important for us not to um, minimize that, you know, if you look in PubMed, you'd be surprised there's a lot to support, you know, what we're what we're sharing with people. I share with your audience too, and not to get into, you know, side conversations about EMFs, mm-hmm. it's related, but you know, I, I read a great book and a shout out to this doctor. I don't know him, Dr. Martin Blank. He's a PhD. He wrote a book called Overpowered. Mm-hmm. And he really d- discusses the, the, that in the beginning before they rolled out these EMFs. And the reason why I bring it up is the study was a suppression of data, very similar to the GMO story. We had data and it was suppressed. We knew about EMF toxicity, but it was suppressed. And so when you bring forward these ideas, you know, that you get people like to label as conspiracists or, you know, whatever. No, 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 no. Suppression of data. There was carcinogenic studies, for example, on glyphosate as early as the 80s. And the EPA, um, Marion Copley, I believe is her name, was screaming and shouting, saying, hey, this stuff is not good. But they rolled it out anyway. And so there was data. So we've known about, you know, and what I mentioned before about the mitochondria and and glyphosate, there was a study uh, I read from 1979. So uh, hello. Uh, th- th- that was a good study. Um, so data gets suppressed, misinformation gets propagated. They keep saying the same thing online through these very beautiful PR tools that various companies have, and they're slick and they're sexy and they have big pockets. And that's what we're fighting in is this PR blitz mm-hmm. of misinformation. Mm-hmm. There is science. So when people say we don't have science that GM GM are bad, um, actually we do. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I think that's so important to keep coming back to just so people feel equipped when they, you know, really um, take on, (laughs) you know, these issues. Um, So I consider myself an optimist, even though we both kind of work, work in this realm all day long, you know? Um, And so I know that um, in spite of what we're all up against, we do have tools, right? We do have, you know, treatments and tools and therapies that can help us um, have more resilience and, you know, recover from being sick in spite of our environment right now. And I know that you have a lot of unique, um, you know, ways that you treat people. And so I just would love to share, you know, what, what treatments do you use and what, what things you want to educate, um, the audience about on how to really, um, support your body, um, around like not only avoiding exposure, I think we'll both agree to that as much as you can, but what are some tools and tips to really decrease the effects on herbicides and pesticides in the environment? Well, yes. And I I can answer that because I'm full of optimism because kids get better. People get better. You can reverse disease and disease does not define you. And there are epigenetics and you can uh, nutrient dense foods, nutrigenomics is the field. You can alter your epigenes, which will alter your gene expression by your environment. So this idea that we can't reverse it is false. And epigenetics affects your microbiome. We have good data. just read a great paper in 2018. So let's be clear, that is a doable thing. And that's what we try to do with our patients. To become educated, yes, please read the book, What's Making Our Kids Sick. Don't, don't, you know, don't, don't suffer. Go to our website, become educated, uh, www.gmoscience.org. We spend a lot of time giving you the best science on those articles. So become educated. Organic food, can't say that enough. Filtered water, yes. Mm-hmm. Which filter? People ask me all the time. And <laughs> I, I get that question all the time too. All the time. I send them to EWG, mm-hmm. environmental working group. Mm-hmm. I said, I I have what I use, but you know what? Really do your homework and what's best in your pocketbook and, and you know, with mm-hmm. you know, your finances. Mm-hmm. Hey, take your shoes off at the door, although I can't seem to get that people in my house do that. Dust <laughs> is the most toxic thing in your house. Oh wow. So I know. So why we can't, I, let's not even go there. Yeah. And so <laughs> we take our, then, we have people take their shoes off when they come to Sophia. That's interesting. Dr. Klinghart really made a point when we got the, um, started the office and it is, it does make the environment nicer. I mean, we do a lot of things, but, um, yeah, no, I, I haven't framed it in that dust is one of the most toxic things that we bring into our home. That's a good point. And, and then your baby's crawling on the floor and you have a beautiful baby, off they go, you know, and then hand-to-mouth behavior. That's how children explore their world. Not to mention your poor pooch. The pooch is licking his paws. One out of 1.6 dogs now with cancer, with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, who got to wonder, mm-hmm. um, being the most common. Okay, so I'll stop torturing your people with, <laughs> I'm going to give them some positive posts, posit- no, really, there's some simple things. So people say, how can I get you? Well, you're not going to be able to get me. And there aren't that many integrative pediatricians. I am sorry to say they're just yeah, hard. I know. We're we growing. so need them. Yeah. We're growing. And so if you can't get to a naturopath, an acupuncturist, a pediatrician like myself, um, DO, then there are some home remedies you can do. So to reverse or decrease glyphosate, in addition to what we already mentioned, I say you can try apple cider vinegar. My dear friends, Howard Vlieger, farmer, Don Huber, plant uh, pathophysiologist, recommend it. So do I. Apple cider vinegar and sauerkraut juice goes a long way to reverse glyphosate toxicity. And then people say, and what else? Well, there is a homeopathic product out of Australia, Seralini, um, who's a researcher on glyphosate and Roundup himself and his group uh, helped create this product called Digiodrin. 
one of the worst names I could think of. I'm sorry, Dr. Seralini. <laughs> it's, it's D-I-G-E-O-D-R-E-N, Digiodrin. And it's a homeopathic, and I love it. I have some on my desk here. Um, with uh, homeopathic taraxacum in there, I think it's burdock in there, uh, one, more, one more remedy. And it, it works. I took it, you know, even if you have, maybe have a little too much wine right now, um, it also works. Um, and so I give people that. And then I do, um, if people just can increase their green drinks and their detoxing herbs in their green smoothies, kids will drink these. If you put it a little juice in there, like apple juice, pineapple juice, just a little, let's not go crazy with the juices or coconut milk. And uh, cilantro causes the best herb that I know to detox parsley, uh, cucumber. There's a lot of things you can add. The bitters are harder like dandelion, but you know, just a little bit of dandelion, you know? So I say, don't, I said, don't spray it, eat it. Um, uh, dandelion, these are great. Now then there are remedies that I like from my various homeopathic companies. I'm a big fan of German biologic medicine. Um, for any practitioners out there, there's a detox kit I use. I love this bios product. They have a product called Adaclens. I know I'm talking to practitioners. Just one second. Um, Adaclens. Okay, those are practitioners. You have to be a practitioner to get those. But there are great homeopathics to help you detox from um, this pesticide onslaught. So I say do that. And then and then um, you need to uh, heal your intestinal permeability, um, your dysbiosis. I do recommend probiotics and we could spend, I, Christine, how many hours on probiotics? <laughs> Too six, many, seven, right? <laughs> six or seven. Mm-hmm. I, I, love I had, a, I had, um, Kieran Krishnan on the podcast. So, um, the Megaspore um, creator. So he did a great job explaining a lot. Mm-hmm. Kieran is a, an advisor on our website. Oh, great. Science. He's so I smart. I love him. Mm-hmm. He's so smart. These are the people who help us stay smart, Christine. Mm-hmm. We are we are not smart in a vacuum. We all help each other. Um, my two favorite words in the world are coalition and collaboration, how we collaborate to all help each other. Um, because we each know a little and together we know more. Love and it. how we can create this. And so people can start doing this at home, even if you're not working with an integrative provider that you can start to make these changes. And then I hear people say, I eat all organic, I'm still sick. I say, well, that's the internal milieu. You need to clean up the external milieu. You're mm-hmm. cleaning products. Ladies, mm-hmm. are you dyeing your hair? Mm-hmm. Are you putting on tons of toxic makeup? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, hello, women use 20 products a day, the average American woman. So those products may not be clean. So we have to look at all our environments, our terrain, like our soil, we clean that up. It's a journey. I don't tell people to do this cold turkey in 24 hours. It may take a month, six months, a year. Mm-hmm. Be patient with yourself and please mindfulness, decreasing our stress. Mm-hmm. We're all stressed. How? What? Whatever you like to do, meditation, uh, mindfulness, walking, whatever your thing is, don't beat your husband, whatever else you can do to 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 decrease your internal stress, to balance your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. You know, this is what we're trying to do. However you do that, do that Mm -hmm. as a daily practice. And I I should have put stress, like stress reduction up at the top of the list, right by organic food. But this is what we can do. And you don't need a big budget to to go take a walk or meditate. Mm -hmm. Hello? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's free. That's a free point right there. Mm-hmm. So that's what I tell my patients, right? That's our first visit. Mm-hmm. 
absolutely. And I think, you know, I um, try to stress in how I educate people, you know, we have to live um, a lifestyle of detoxification. You know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And, you know, a lot of people um, think, oh, I have this heavy metal load or I have this glyphosate load. I just get that down. I can return to my life. But, um, you know, we all are getting um, exposed constantly. So just supporting our livers and our kidneys and our skin or in our lungs and, you know, all of these um, body systems can help us tolerate and thrive in our environment. So I think you picked um, a lot of really great tools. I'm a fan of the sauna and coffee enemas and, you know, lymph drainage support and, you know, all of that. We could talk all day about those things, but I think, um, yes, you know, this is really the key to our medicine is, um, you know, empowering people to uh, live a lifestyle of detoxification. And once people get these, you know, um, habits into their routine, I feel like you feel better, right? And so you self, you know, you, you, you do more of these things because you feel better from them. So I think um, you picked a lot of great, um, I'm gonna have to um, write some of those product names down and um, rotate them into my protocols. Um, I'm always um, interested in what people are using. Um, Me too. Me too. And, you know, and so this, and that's what we're really teaching, aren't we, is how do we modify our lifestyle and not so that we're so, we're not trying to create like a sea of neurotic people. No, no, stop it. Stop. We're not trying to do that. We're we're incorporating these new changes. We're evolving and hopefully we're doing it for ourselves and our family in a way that is supportive and not creating more stress for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we're beginning to um, evolve our lives and we need to make these changes. And what I tell people, the bottom line is if you don't make some of these changes like your diet, it is I could give you the best remedies in the world. I could be the most brilliant homeopath, but they won't hold. Mm-hmm. You, you will relapse. Mm-hmm. And so I tell people, if you're not ready to make some changes, it's unlikely you're going to get better. Mm-hmm. So what what are you willing to do? Mm-hmm. And if people aren't willing to make those commitments, I say, come back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I'm going to waste your time and your money. So let's. When are you ready to make some change? And changes. It changes good. Changes have to be hard. Change is good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think we both. Um seen, you know, it's like, how can people make these changes before they get really sick, you know, and I know that's hard human behavior to do that. But I feel like, um, you know, from the lens that we see chronically ill people, if we can just take um, all of that knowledge base and um, if people can just start before they feel ill, um, how much are they preventing? Um, you know, we, I, I know they are preventing um, illness down the line and also, um, you know, supporting, you know, having if, um, healthier children and all of that. So I think it's really important um, that none of us are immune to this, um, even if you're not feeling this in your body. And how can you just start today with some of these um, these things that we're talking about? Amen. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We could talk all day, Michelle, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, mean, I know. I know. We're just warming up. I know. I know. I know, right? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, I know that we're, you know, coming up on our time and I know that, um, we could, you know, talk for hours, um, and I hope to do so. (laughs) Um, but where can people learn more about you and your work and your, your book, what's making our children sick? Where can they find out more about you? Oh, yes, absolutely. So, um, they can visit our website, gmoscience.org, and, um, I hope they enjoy that. The book can be bought on Chelsea Green's website, certainly on Amazon, uh, What's Making Our Children Sick. Um, I, um, have been touring a lot. Um, I will be going to the Midwest and I am actually going to South Africa. Ooh, oh, wow. Excited. Oh, that's great. Yep. 
Yep, and I'm very excited to work with the South African Society of Integrative Medicine um, about some of these topics. And that that just, you know, making our planet very, you know, connected. But um, I've been a little lax creating my own website. It's been on my to-do list where people can find me and see where I'm speaking and all that. That is in the works. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the last thing I do is all that self-promotion stuff, Christine. I'm just not, <laughs> I'm just not a big fan. You and I were at that conference. Oh. Uh, I, I know. Uh, but it's on my tool. It's on my to-do list mm-hmm. of really just creating that. So people, my goal is to get information out to families and uh, be an advocate for all kids. Um, I love children, um, and that's what I do. So I'm committed to that, and uh, that will be coming hopefully in a month. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Well, no, your work speaks for itself, and I I know whenever you get your website done, that that's going to be great. You know, people can find out more about you. But I hope that people um, pick up your book. I was really really impressed um, when I looked um, looked at that and what you're covering, and you're really diving deep. It's not just um, you know, it, it's a it's going deep with the research and research and the practical tips and tools that we can do to make change. And I think that we all want healthier children. Um, they're our future, and I'm so grateful that you spent the time to put this book together and all the work that you're doing. And I really appreciate your time today. And uh, thank you so much. Christine, thank you. Thank you for creating this wonderful podcast. And uh, a special shout out, shout out to my unbelievable co-author, who's brilliant and sassy and brought this big global view to the book that I'm a clinician in a clinical, you know, myopic viewpoint. And she brings this global perspective, which allowed us to really expand the topic in a way that I found uh, very exciting in terms of the topic. But I thank you for providing this forum for allowing people to get this information, get access um, and to uh, uh, difficult subjects, but totally approachable. So thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Well, we'll have all of this information in the show notes and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Michelle Perro. Please check out her book, What's Making Our Children Sick, and you can check out her website in the show notes as well. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please feel free to email us. Let us know how the podcast is going. And if you feel compelled to leave a review on iTunes, I'd greatly appreciate it. And I thank you so much for your support.